Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, our coronavirus investing series. And today we have on Shelly Lombard, who runs Millie Money. Uh, she also uh, worked as a you know on Wall Street for uh, about thirty years. Her specialty was in junk bonds and value equities and distress situations. And uh, uh, Shelley, you know, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Now you also, if I'm if I'm correct, you you do some guest lecturing at Columbia Business School as well. Yeah, I do Columbia and Wharton. Um, and so I'm doing a lot of, um, they have executive education programs. I got my MBA at Columbia, okay. um, but I also do some guest lecturing um, at Columbia and Wharton. And then I also teach some special classes in investing for, you know, hedge funds, et cetera. And my, my, my dad got uh, got his MBA at Columbia through the executive education. Like the, ah, yeah. Okay. yeah, cool. Very cool. So tell us a little bit about, you know, I gave a little rundown, but tell us a little bit about your background on Wall Street and kind of, you know, how you started your career. Just just give us a little background on who you are. Sure, sure. So I um I was a journalist before, just for a few years, right out of undergrad, and um, decided I wasn't happy doing that, decided to go back to Columbia and get my MBA. And I have to say, I was lost. I was used to being a really strong student, but a lot of the people in the MBA program had worked on Wall Street for two years as analysts and then come back to get their MBAs. And so just concepts, basic concepts like present value, um, you know, what is commercial paper, stuff like that, I just had no clue. I was lost. So I really had to, um, your baby accounting for me, they called it baby accounting, but it might have well been space accounting as far as I was concerned. I mean, it was just really, really hard for me to grasp some grasp some of the concepts. Right. But you really learn a lot of this stuff on the job. So my first job out of business school was at Citibank doing leverage buyouts. And I, that's where I learned to model and I learned to value companies and I learned how people think about this kind of stuff. And uh, eventually I found my way into uh, being a junk bond analyst and a value equity analyst. And the reason I do both is because if you do junk bonds, sometimes the, the debt gets converted into equity if the company is really in trouble. So then I had to figure out how to value equities in companies that were you know, exiting bankruptcy or potentially going into bankruptcy. So um, I you know, ended up doing it for probably about 30 years. Right now I'm doing a lot of teaching and I just launched Millie Money uh, for novice investors. Um, because, you know, when people learn that I worked on Wall Street, they always want to ask me, what do you think of Tesla? Should I buy Netflix? You know, they always want to ask things like that. And a lot of times um, it's it's they need really basic information. So, for example, my daughter, who, you know, you assume picks up this stuff through osmosis, you know, had some of her 401k and money markets. And I was like, no, <laughs> not the right vehicle for your 401k. So uh, anyway, so I started Millie Money for novice investors, but really this kind of bear market is really the kind of place that I cut my teeth. Um, so I really like talking about that as well, about you know how to look at companies in this type of environment. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting um, and timely to have you on uh, when we're having you on. We you know we did an episode in December with Jeremy Raper on a credit-based equity investing. And, you know, just from some of our previous conversations, you, you certainly have a similar way of looking at uh, 
equities in, in that manner. And I think it's especially important today where, you know, one of the analysis is just figuring out, okay, is this business going to be around in a year or is it going to be around, but the equity is going to be wiped out. So, right. um, you know, so can you, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your approach to when, when you're looking at a security, whether it's a bond or an equity kind of what, what is, what is your, what is your approach to looking at assets? Sure. So, you know, I I just want to reiterate what you said. You know, we're coming off of environment where it's been a pretty easy to raise money. Um, and, you know, pretty much if you had a pulse, you could raise debt. You know, you could issue bonds, junk bonds, etc. And so companies, I think, have a lot more leverage than they went into this bull market mm-hmm. with. And so obviously, you know, coronavirus is an issue now because people, you know, rightly so think it could lead us into a recession. And, you know, there's a question of whether, you know, I think some people thought it might be a V-shaped recession. You know, now it looks like maybe a U recession if we're fortunate. You know, if we're unfortunate, it could be an L. You know, company, the country goes into a recession and kind of stays there. So it's really going to test people's balance sheets. Um, and so like people, you know, the amount of debt you have and the liquidity you have going into a troubled environment is really key. And then also with companies, it's your business model. Do you have high fixed costs, et cetera? Uh, just one thing before I kind of, you know, talk about my approach, Um, you know, Houlihan Loki, which is a firm that uh, advises companies that are restructuring, you know, either before they go into bankruptcy or once they're in bankruptcy, said they really expect default rates to be higher than they were in 08 and 09. Um, You know, companies, you know, and even if companies don't default, you know, that could be uh, an environment that leads to very volatile equity prices. Because, you know, we all know equity values, just like the equity in your house, goes up and down depending on the value of your house. You know, the equity is the first thing to get volatile if people start getting concerned about the the company. So even if you don't think the company is going to file, you know, equity prices could be volatile. So that credit-based approach, which kind of you know, I almost didn't have any choice but to do that because I grew up in the you know the debt markets, like you know making loans for leveraged buyouts, and then being a junk bond analyst. I think of everything in that in that way, um, and so I have a you know a certain approach. So I, I, I'm happy to talk about that. You know, um, I guess you guys pretty much coined the phrase you know a credit based approach to equity investing, and I saw that and I was like, yes, that's exactly that's exactly right and exactly you know appropriate for what we're dealing with today. Um, and I guess it's, it's you know, credit analysts are much more used to looking at the potential downside um, just because on debt, you know, you have a little bit of upside. Maybe it trades up, you know, maybe if interest rates are going down, the debt trades up a little bit, but you have a lot of downside. So in 08, you know, 07, 08, even earlier than that, I was covering the auto industry and I covered General Motors and there were people who bought General Motors bonds at, you know, 100 cents on the dollar, which is what you pay for bonds. And they were still in. In it when those bonds were down at in the 30s. So if you had a hundred million dollar, you know, you a pretty typical investment grade fund might have a hundred million dollars in GM. You know, if the, the bonds went from par, you know, a hundred cents on the dollar to 30 cents, you've lost 70 million dollars. That's a lot of money. Right. So, you know, bondholders and you know, credit people are used to looking at things like what's the downside. So I think that's an appropriate way to look at, you know, some some of these situations now just because of the kind of environment we're going to. So I'm happy to kind of, you know, walk through, a, a you know, my approach a little bit. Yeah, maybe we can go. So I think, you know, you, you're such a veteran on Wall Street. I think it would be interesting to maybe go through like one or two um, prior 
uh, case studies and things you actually looked at that make for a cool story. And then maybe one or two things, you know, in the given environment today that you're looking at and kind of go through your thought process. Would that would that work for you? Sure, that'll work. So, you know, companies run into problems when they run out of cash or look like they're going to run out of cash um, if they can't refinance an upcoming maturity um, or their banks or their vendors get nervous and the banks, you know, don't want to give them any more credit or their vendors don't want to ship. So, you know, two stories from, um, you know, the, the 08 kind of time frame. So one turned out well and one didn't. So one is Goodyear and Goodyear makes obviously tires and the problem they were having then opposite to now is that that gas prices were high. And so people weren't driving as much. And so, you know, tires are not a discretionary purchase. Like you don't like decide, wake up one day and decide, oh, I'm going to go shop for tires. Like you only buy them when you need them. And the only reason you need them is, you know, it depends on how many miles you're driving. So if people have cut back on the miles that they're driving. They're going to eventually need tires, but they won't be replacing them as quickly. So Goodyear um, bonds, you know, were kind of still, you know, they weren't trading at really distress levels, but the stock had gone down to like single digits. Maybe it was five bucks a share, something like that. So the question was, one, did Goodyear have enough liquidity and money to make it until oil prices came down again and people started driving? Because what people were doing, they were taking public transportation, they were, you know, uh, sharing rides, et cetera, because nobody wanted to pay, you know, for fill up their tank at four bucks a gallon and even higher in places like California. And so, you know, a couple of things you had to look at, at with Goodyear was, did they have the liquidity to get through this? Nobody knew when gas prices would come back down again. Did they have the liquidity to get through this? Did they have any ability to kind of offset this decline in volume until, you know, gas prices turned around. Um, and I guess the answer to both of those things were yes. So, you know, I looked at their liquidity lines, their amount of cash, you know, what kind of cash burn they had. Um, so it looked like they could make it through the cycle. But the other thing that, that that was really helpful is, one, there's no substitute for tires. And when you need them, you need them. So it's kind of what we call inelastic demand. Um, so that was helpful for them. They controlled their own distribution. They have their own Goodyear tire stores. And in addition to that, management was very smart. So a lot of it comes down to management and what management does. They decided if they couldn't sell you tires more frequently, what they were going to do is sell you a higher price tire when you came in. And I didn't understand it when I when they first started talking about it. But essentially, that's around the time they introduced the run flat tire. So, you know, they'd have these commercials where you're driving with your family on this dark, desolate highway and you get a flat. Well, the run flat tire enables you to drive another 50 miles on it until you can get to the next gas station. And so they couldn't make you buy tires sooner than you needed to because you just, why? Why would you do that? But when you did finally come into the store, they sold you a higher price tire. And so Goodyear was able to make it out of that. Um, I was a bond analyst at the time, but I actually recommended the stock. I got to the party late. I was like, yeah, I wasn't a believer at five, six bucks a share. I think I became a believer in the company and what management was doing at maybe nine bucks a share. And I think it rallied, you know, to the mid twenties. What, what, um, what was the valuation of, of the company around nine? 
Um, you know what? I don't remember because okay. it was over 10 years ago. Yeah. So I just don't remember. Um, I, that's a good question, but I don't remember. It was just too long ago for my memory. But um, it was, um, and I certainly did it like, and what, you know, uh, bond analysts tend to do is an EBITDA valuation because mm-hmm. obviously you're valuing the enterprise, uh, not just the equity. So I didn't do a PE multiple or anything like that. That was kind of out the window at that point because, you know, earnings were kind of all over the place and multiples were kind of all over the place. But I did an EBITDA multiple. Then you get the enterprise value, subtract out the debt, and then you have the value of the equity. And I was really comfortable with the value of the equity, ended up recommending it, and it turned out you know, well for people. At that time, I was working for a research firm whose research was purchased on a subscription basis by hedge funds and people who were doing you know, proprietary trading, you know, investment banks that were doing proprietary trading. So that worked out well for people. One that didn't work out well for people was General Motors. So General Motors, um, similar problems, um, your gas prices were high. So people were making the decision rather than buying, um, buying cars, they wanted uh, rather than buy SUVs, they wanted to buy hybrids and passenger cars. So they had two things going on. Not, not only were gas prices high, but the economy was relatively weak. So so people were, you know, kind of scaling down, buying less expensive passenger cars that didn't didn't use as much gas, hybrids if they could get them, or they were delaying their purchases of cars altogether. So that exposed a lot of problems with General Motors. Uh, so unlike Goodyear, where there's no substitute for tires, General Motors and, and Goodyear had obviously competitors, Cooper Tire, Bridgestone, etc. Sure. But General Motors had um, competitors that had a better reputation for quality than they did. So there was Toyota, there was Nissan, there was Volkswagen, etc. And they just had too many um, nameplates, for lack of a better word. So at that point, GM owned Saturn, Ford owned Jaguar. And so you've got to spread your advertising dollars over all these different vehicles. And so that ushered in, ushered in uh, uh, a time when General Motors said, we just need to restructure this, this company altogether. What we're doing is not working in this new environment where people are buying new cars less frequently and they're scaling down. And you know what? It doesn't cost that much more in labor to put together a car than it does at an SUV. But that Ford Focus might Cost you know twenty thousand dollars, and that you know Ford Navigator or whatever might cost fifty thousand dollars. So it's a big difference in price. So that didn't work out well for people because the equity got wiped out. General Motors was just slow to get off the mark and kind of restructure. It's kind of like turning around a um, you know an ocean liner in in a stream. It just took them too long to get stuff to. Together, they ran out of cash. They had to be bailed out by the comp- the government. That saved the company, but equity holders got wiped out, and bondholders recovered thirty cents on the dollar. So, you know, not having enough liquidity was a big thing. When I first started looking at General Motors, they had like enough liquidity we thought to get through a couple of years, but the cycle turned out to be much deeper and last a lot longer than we thought. So we thought, oh, you know, in a few in a year or two, gas price 
prices will be back down again. People will be back to buying their SUVs and General Motors will be fine. And it didn't work like that at all. And one thing it exposed was General Motors problems. So, you know, one thing I would say to people is, and I always say this when I teach classes, a lot of times these cycles, these down cycles expose problems that the company had before, and this cycle is going to make it worse. So, you know, with retailing, for example, brick and mortar retailers have been under assault for a while. But now, you know, in this environment with COVID, people are buying even more than ever online. People who've never bought groceries online are buying groceries online. So what that means for retailers, brick and mortar going forward, it's accelerated that trend to online shopping and that has implications for retailers. So even though, you know, to make the assumption that, you know, earnings are just gonna bounce back to where they were before COVID may not be a valid assumption because, you know, the, the buying habits have changed forever. Um, and so that that's something people really need to look at. I looked at a distressed retailer the other day whose name I'm not going to call, but the stock is really beaten up. It's it popped up after earnings, probably because it was short covering. But again, I think it's changed. Um, it's cha Retailing is going to be changed forever. And so that's, um, yeah. So I think, you know, just in terms of the macro or the qualitative analysis uh -huh. um, is something that's really critical when you're looking at, you know, uh, equities in this environment. Right. So what are you what are you looking at today? That's interesting. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's you know, it's a tough one. I think um, I've put a little bit of money to work. Uh, but not a lot because I think the market has another leg down. Who knows? Nobody has a crystal ball. Sure. You know, the, the best thing and the smartest thing to do is invest either, you know, monthly kind of dollar cost averaging or, you know, it goes down 10 percent. You put some more in, then it goes down 10 percent and you put some more in, um, you know, a couple of things that I have in my portfolio that have been hit the hardest have been Disney. Um, because of the whole theme park thing. Um, I didn't buy more of it, but I still like it. Um, I think it'll be slow to recover because I think, you know, people are going to be afraid of crowds, et cetera, for a while. But I've owned, I owned Disney before the crash, uh, before the bear market got ushered in. And, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm not, you know, I think it's a bad idea to sell it. Um, you know, I own, um, I own Amazon, uh, owned it before the crash and I still like it. I own, um, Take Two, which makes um, Grand Theft Auto and video games. That one has performed pretty well. Um, one name I went into for the first time, and now I'm like, I won't say I'm having second thoughts, but you know, I, I've always liked Starbucks. I got in it, then I got out of it, and it kind of rallied, and then I didn't get back in it. You know, I think it will be a name that will recover quickly. Um, and one of the things to think about is who's going to recover and recover quickly, just because I think when they finally let us out of our houses we'll be running to like you know we might not be running to take cruises or you know running to go to you know a theme park and take our kids to a theme park but I think we'll be like oh you know I can go to restaurants I can go to my local Starbucks and get a cup All of right. coffee um but I think that's going to be a tough one if you look at their leverage they have borrowed a lot in the last couple of years to do stock buybacks the infamous stock buybacks and so their debt is a little bit 
higher than I would like. Uh, and they're being very good to their employees. They closed all their stores in China. I think they're starting to reopen some of them. Um, but they have been you know, very generous to their employees as they should be. And that's a great, you know, that's a great corporate citizen kind of move. But that's going to hurt their earnings. Um, I think they can mitigate a little bit because they have drive through. You know, so you don't have to actually go into the store and, you know, stay and hang. And they probably wouldn't let you do that anyway. But something tells me when the you know, when this is over, people are going to be dying to get out of their houses and go do stuff like, you know, have a latte at the the local coffee shop just to, to get a different scenery. So I like Starbucks, but I would probably be a little bit cautious just because of their debt load. They're much more highly leveraged than they were two years ago. And, um, you know, leverage is not. Now, look, they still have. Have, you know, as a bond investor, I tend to look at things like, you know, EBITDA interest coverage and, you know, just how well they can pay their debt. But I think one thing you got to remember that all these ratios are backward looking. So yeah. I think the, this first quarter is going to tell us a lot, like how much cash they burn through and that cash versus their cash position and their credit lines is going to tell us a lot. And so that's one of the things I look at. And, you know, if you want me to talk a little bit about, you know, cash and cash being king. I'm happy to talk about some of the the ratios and some of the things that I look at, you know, that you may not look at as the typical equity investor, but I'd look at it because I can't help myself because I'm a bond investor. Yeah, no, please you know, go ahead. What, what, what are some of those ratios that, that, that yeah. you look at? So um, I look at what's called cash from operations. It's not a ratio; it's just a number that you would pull off the company's cash flow statement. If you use, um, and I like to use, I just discovered them, and I'm a big fan. Coifin, K-O-I-F-I-N.com. It's a site where you can pull down financials, you know, and they do some of the work for you. So you know, you not only have the gross margin there, but you have the gross margin percentage, you know. So I I just discovered them, you know, about six weeks ago, and I absolutely love it. They make it easy. I don't have to calculate my own ratios. They calculate a lot of them. Um, but if you pull it off COIFIN or whether you look pull it off the 10K or the 10Q, you want to see a company that has positive cash from operations. And that's the number that's kind of in the middle of the cash flow statement. In other words, it's basically net income and it adds back and subtracts out things that we don't often think about, like working capital, um, you know, stuff like that. You know, if you're a company that builds inventory, then that working capital number but is important if you're not selling inventory, it's just building and sitting there. So cash from operations, incorporates that number. So I look to see that a company has positive cash from operations and that that number covers their capital spending. And their capital spending is the amount they spend to keep stay in business. So for example, when I took over General Motors, it was an investment grade company. And I looked at it and basically the auto operations were not generating enough cash to cover the CapEx. And that's a heavy CapEx build, uh, business. It's plants, it's equipment, it's tools. Etc. It wasn't generating enough cash from the auto operations to cover the capex they needed to spend to develop new models and stuff like that. Not talking about R and D. I'm talking about investing in property, plant, and equipment. And I remember thinking, how is this thing ever investment grade? Well, what was happening was their finance company was they were making a lot of money, basically making people car loans, and so that was kind of masking or allowing them to continue to kind of. Motor along with the auto operations not being as profitable as they should be. So I look at cash from operations versus CapEx again. 
this is a look back. But if that's been bad historically, you know, going forward, these guys have a problem. So even though that's a look back, if you look at their last 10K or you pull up their numbers on Coifin or, you know, some other site and cash from operations is not enough to cover the PP&E, that they're the property planning equipment they need to invest in their business. Historically, it wasn't covering it. You know, it's just going to get worse. So that's a problem. And maybe that's a name that you would avoid on a going forward basis, you know, what I like to look at is cash as a percentage of debt, because that kind of lets you know how liquid they are. Um, I will often look at cash and receivables versus their current liabilities. So cash and receivables, that's, you know, receivables are something that will turn into cash quickly. And I look at how much that covers the stuff that's going to be due in the next 12 months, which is the current liabilities. That's the current portion of debt and other stuff like that. And then I also will look at upcoming maturities. People file, people get into trouble because they either run out of cash, as I said, or they can't refinance upcoming maturity. So if a company doesn't run out of cash, but they have a big, you know, a billion dollars of bonds maturing next year, that might be a problem because the capital markets might not want to refinance that debt for them. And so I look at, you know, cash from operations versus, you know, PP CapEx, which is spending on PP&E. I look at cash as a percentage of debt. I look at if they have any upcoming maturities. Um, and I also will look at their credit lines. And you've probably seen the headlines. A lot of companies now are borrowing as a preemptive strike, just going into their credit, their bank credit facility, and just borrowing yeah. in case they can't do it in the future, just so they can make sure they have liquidity. And that's probably a wise move. Um, I don't think the banks are in trouble like they were in 08 or 09. But I think that's probably wise to have that cash um, on hand. And so um, the those are some of the things. Some of them are ratios like cash and receivables to current liabilities, but some of them are just, you know, number like cash to debt is a ratio, but, you know, credit lines, upcoming maturities, and, you know, the historically, you know, if they've historically been able to cover, you know, uh, PP&E from cash from operations, that's a big one for me, because if they weren't able to do that in a healthy, strong economy, then that's a problem going forward. Right. Are there are there any um, distressed bonds that you're looking at in this environment? Yeah, distress. I think there's going to be a lot of product. Um, I think um, what I will say is I think distressed investors are um, they're. They're based, I won't say they're on the sidelines, but they think like a lot of equity investors, there's another leg down. Now, equity is a lot more liquid, so you can do something like, say, I'm going to put on a, a small position, and then next month, or if it go down, goes down another 10%, I'll put on some more. Bonds are a lot less liquid. So yeah. a lot of times you want to wait. You know, you definitely want to kind of, you know, kind of phase yourself in if you can help it, but you don't have you don't have that luxury as much as equities do. So I think distressed bond guys are little bit more cautious when they put in positions, put on positions. So I don't see a lot of people running to necessarily put stuff on right now. They're more like waiting, whereas equities, you kind of don't. Like I ended up buying Starbucks anyway. Um, and so, I, you know, I bought Starbucks and, um, you know, I'll probably buy some more if it goes lower. You know, I'm aware of the concerns, etc. But, you know, we'll see how it goes. But um, I think uh, distressed bondholders are a little bit less you know, a less, uh, they, they, 
a little bit more cautious just because they may not be able to average down if they want to because the bonds are a lot less liquid. I well, what if I mean, what if say there's something trading at thirty cents in the dollar, and you go, okay, let's say this thing goes on for another year, and maybe there even is a bankruptcy, I can reasonably get paid back, you know, fifty cents on the dollar. I mean, are, are there situations like that that you see at all? Um, you know what? I can't think of any off the top of my head. I probably, I probably look at one distress situation a week. Mm -hmm. What I will say is, and I, I do some work in addition to my own website, I do some work for a high net worth family, um, that I look at investment ideas for them. And I also use a lot of cases in my regular work. You know, when I do my lectures, et cetera, I do a lot of cases, but what I will say is, um, I think you need to be really careful with some of the situations now because a lot of the companies, so we've come in through a very healthy economy. Right. And so if a company is distressed right now, um, not once it gets to COVID, that's a different thing. But um, one of the things that if it's distressed right now, or it was distressed the last year, it's because not because of the economy, because the economy has been very strong. It's been, it's distressed because basically um, there's a problem with the business. So in my line of work, we used to say good company, bad balance sheet. So when I was doing leverage buyout, it was, oh, this is a good company. They just have too much debt. Now you see a lot of marginal companies. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give you an example. Yeah, please. So um, they're not bad companies, but you know the, the competitive landscape has just changed out from under them. So for example, I'll give you a current example and an old example. So when I was looking at high yield bonds, I covered auto, I also covered media, some you know names like crossover names like Sirius XM, you kind of auto and media. Um, um, and I covered media. Radio was one. Yep. So there was a huge leverage buyout done for by a very smart private equity shop. And um, they levered it way up. And I think leverage was like 15 times or something like that. It was a lot. And so a lot, a lot, a lot of debt. And um, the first year was tough because earnings and EBITDA in particular, there weren't really any net income to speak of because of all the interest expense, but earnings were really coming in um, lower. EBITDA was coming in lower than they expected. And everybody said, oh, you know, it's going to be okay because we're just coming off a weak economy. Advertising is low and it's going to come back. Well, what really had happened was the ground had shifted out from underneath them. So the reason this this company, this private equity firm was willing to pay 15 times EBITDA for a radio operator, not just one station. They were, it's basically iHeart Radio. It used to be Clear Channel. Now it's iHeart. They were willing to do that because radio stations used to change hands. They used to you buy them and sell them for 15 times or less, you know, a little bit less, but, you know, 15 times EBITDA, which is high. But the thought was these guys have an FCC license. Anybody can't just set up a radio station on the corner somewhere you got to have an FCC license. But what had happened was in the interim, and I think they started running into trouble, maybe 2010, something like that, is that all of a sudden you had Spotify and you had Pandora and you had people listening to music in their cars, you know, that was downloaded onto their phones. And you had, um, so, you know, traditional radio was less attractive and not just to listeners, uh, to listeners, but then it became less attractive to advertisers who not only had, um, um, 
the ability to advertise on radio, which had been a mainstay, but they could do mobile advertising. They could advertise on websites. They could advertise on Google. So all of a sudden, radio stations individually were not changing hands and being bought and sold by people at 15 times EBITDA. All of a sudden, multiples basically got cut in half. So now they're probably trading at eight times EBITDA, something like that. And so that is a situation where um, I think the last couple of years in distress, you had to be careful because everybody assumed that iHeart, which eventually they kind of stayed on the respirator for almost you know nine years. I don't think they ended up filing bankruptcy until last year, I think. But um, you know, it, it wasn't that your know, rev- advertising revenue was going to come back. It was never going to come back because something fundamental had changed in the business. So what I would say to people is um, you need to be careful um, and. I think a lot of the reason I'm hesitant to throw out a bunch of distressed ideas is just because I think that in the last couple of years, I think people have been, you know, a lot of the business that businesses that the bonds are trading at 30 cents, it's because there's a problem with the business. So I'll give you another example and then I'll give you a reason. These are both recent examples. One is um, a dairy producer who recently filed bankruptcy, Dean Foods. And if I could remember any of their brand brand names, you probably, you know, are familiar with them. They make butter and cheese and a lot, a lot of milk. Well, when's the last time you heard somebody saying they drink milk? Everybody's like, oh, I don't do dairy. It's oat milk. It's, you know, soy milk. It's whatever. They end up, they didn't branch out into any of those things and they ended up filing bankruptcy. I think it was the end of last year. That's a really hard company to value because EBITDA is just sliding down because people's habits have changed. And there's something unlike Goodyear where there's no substitute for tires. In the case of regular cow's milk, there are a lot of substitutes. And so even if you're somebody who doesn't have a problem with dairy, you're not lactose intolerant, you still don't mind putting some soy milk in your coffee. So that's a problem. Um, So I think distressed investors have been wrestling the last couple of years. And then one other example, I talked about radio, I talked about Dean Foods, oh, uh, Senveo, it's an envelope company. And I think Dean Foods, I think those bonds got down into the 30s or 40s, something like that. But, you know, and there's probably value there. What you've got to do is make some estimate of where EBITDA kind of normalizes. And that's hard to do in an environment where demand just keeps coming down and down and down. Um, I think the other example I was going to give, well, newspapers is similar to radio, but Senveo is uh, a situation where they make envelopes. Um, and they do, they print stuff, they're a commercial printer and they make envelopes. Well, the problem is like, who's printing anything these days? Everybody doesn't, nobody hands you a brochure anymore. They say, go to my website, you know? And then in terms of envelopes, everybody's going paperless. You pay your bills on, they send you the bill online and you pay online. Like there's no such thing, you know, as put a check in the mail anymore. So, um, Senveo is another one where there's a substitute for what they do. Um, and it's basically online. And so they really, um, you know, some of their bonds in bankruptcy have been valued as low as two cents um, because nobody knows when the deterioration in earnings stops. So I said all of that to say, um, I think that's, 
it's kind of a, a similar to what I was talking about with um, your equities. You got to look at it and, and make sure, you know, there's nothing fundamentally changing with the demand for their business. But the problem with a lot of the distressed bonds that we've been seeing the last couple of years is that something fundamental is changing with the business. And those are a lot harder to value. So even people like me who have been doing it for years have been struggling with it because they're just, you know, it's no, it's not like, oh, you know, I'll buy the bonds at 50 cents. The company's going to restructure in bankruptcy. The bond's going to be worth 80 cents. I'm going to collect interest along the way and I'm good. That it's not, it used to be kind of shooting fish in the barrel and it's not like that anymore. A lot harder Um, today. So... It's a lot harder yeah, today. Yeah. And, you know, had I known we were going to kind of get into distressed bonds, I would have maybe come with some examples. But I'd hate for people to kind of go in that direction with distressed bonds. And look, by the time the bonds get distressed, the equities wiped out. So it's a different kind of company. You know, so with Goodyear, for example, those bonds never got particularly stressed. They got down to maybe 97, which is why as somebody who was, you know, looking at that stuff for hedge funds, I wasn't recommending the bonds because they didn't care about three points. They're going to go from 97 to par and they're going to collect like a 6% coupon. Nobody cared. So I recommended the equity and it turned out really nicely. Um, So I think it's kind of, I won't say it's two different worlds. A lot of the analysis is similar, but if you're looking at straight equities, um, then I think um, a lot of the analysis is similar, but you have, you know, depending on the kind of company it is, you may have a little bit less risk than you have trying to figure out, you know, um, you know, whether this bond that's trading at 30 cents on the dollar is actually worth 50 cents or 60 cents. I think, you know, you have a lot of, even though Starbucks has some leverage and that kind of stuff, I think, and look, I could be totally proven wrong because who knows how long this recessionary environment is going to last and who's going to take it down. But what I will say is there's no problem with Starbucks business model because it's been, you know what I mean? So they might have you know, maybe leverage, you know, that might give me pause. Um, and look, if you look at their EBITDA interest coverage, it's still something ridiculous, like ridiculously high. And, you know, their their leverage is something that's ridiculously low. It's just higher than it used to be. But I don't think you have any questions about their business model. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, I know what it was, cable. So that's one. Again, the bonds haven't, I don't think, gotten into distress levels yet. But what's the soup, the uh, the substitution for cable these days? It's streaming. You know, so my daughter recently moved into her own place and, you know, I asked her what cable provider she was going to get. She was like, Mom, nobody gets cable anymore. You know, I'm going to just do Netflix, etc. And so you have what you call cord nevers, people who not just didn't get, who didn't just get rid of their cable. They never signed up for cable or satellite. So what you're seeing with AT&T which owns um, DirecTV is you know, really the real deterioration in their number of subscribers. And so those bonds have not gotten to distress levels yet, and it may be a long time before they do, if ever, because obviously AT&T has other businesses, but that's a business that, um, you know, where the equity could be hit. Um, AT&T is a little different because it's doing something else. It owns DirecTV, but obviously AT&T has a whole nother business and, you know, mobile and blah, 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 but sure. that's another industry where you go, there's something fundamentally going on here with this business, and 
And so um, the bonds haven't gotten distressed yet, but once they do, it will probably, it's it, once bonds get to 30, it's way too late to buy the equity. The equity may be trading at two bucks, but you wouldn't want to touch it because it's going to get wiped out. Right. Inter- interesting. Have you, have you looked at any of the industries that actually have been hit, but there might be, you know, some good businesses just being thrown out with the junk? Let's say like in the, you know, the theme parks or, you know, retailers or malls or um, airlines, anything like that. Yeah, so I probably wouldn't be quick to jump on, you know, uh, names like Six Flags or cruises or airlines, just because a couple of things. I think it's going to take those guys a lot longer to pop back than a Starbucks. Starbucks right. is something that even, you know, if you've lost your job and you're paying catch up, you still have a couple of bucks for your favorite latte. So it's not a high ticket item. It's a, you know, consumer discretionary, but one that's very cheap. Um, And I think our need for socialization is going to drive people back to the Starbucks of the world. So that's a little bit different than paying, you know, $200 to go to Disney or paying, you know, $1,000 to go on a cruise. So I think those guys, the airlines, the cruise ships, the hotels are going to come back a lot more slowly than something like a Starbucks, which is one reason I I liked Starbucks, despite, you know, its leverage. Um, And so those I think the other thing is because of their high fixed costs, they're much more likely to um, have liquidity issues. You know, um, you know, if you're an airline and you, you got, you know, tons of aircraft just sitting there, that's a problem. Um, and so I'm, you know, industries that look like they may need a bailout, I'm not as um, enthusiastic about, not because I don't think they will come back, but I think, you know, you could have some issues where they don't come back and they don't come back as fast. Um, You know, the kind of thing that I would be thinking about, either other things that are, and I don't think these are defensive, but things, look, for me right now, there's stuff that's cheap enough that I don't have to take the business risk. You know what I mean? Exactly. Completely. Business risk. And yeah, so there are things that I don't have. So take two. It's something that I'm involved in. You know, they make video games. So it's not something where I have to take business risk. Home Depot, I don't have to take business risk there. You know what I mean? If interest rates stay low, there's always going to be. And, you know, that's pretty beaten up. I think the... um, the, the that one I can't remember where it was trading. I know the high on the stock was close to 250. The you know right now it's like 180 something like that. Disney. The only reason why I'm not concerned about that is because they have their streaming business. Um, theme parks I think is only about 30 percent of sales, and so their streaming business is you know it's nowhere near 30 percent of sales now. But they have enough other stuff. They have their content. They have all of that other stuff. So I think there's enough stuff going on there um, that they'll be fine. You know. Amazon, I don't have to take any business risk there. And some of those things are not as cheap, but they're way cheaper than they were. Um, Square is another one that's been beaten up. I think the high tick on that was like 87 and it's down by like 50%. It's about 44 right now. And so that's another thing that I'm in and I like because basically your retail is going by the wayside, but when it comes back, that, you know, their usage will come back. And so I think in this environment, it's just there's too much stuff where there's not 
that much business risk where you might as well say rather than take and look i'll get a bigger reward for it if sure. you know i buy you know uh royal caribbean equity or if i buy you know name some uh, united airlines equity i'd get a bigger return for it eventually but i also have you know risk versus return i also have you know commensurate risk because you know it wouldn't be inconceivable that one of those companies could file if the government bailout isn't enough for them. So for me, there's enough stuff where I say, you know, there's there's not as much business risk and it's already beaten up. I'd rather do that than take the business risk on something like, you know, United or, you know, or, you know, Royal Caribbean. You know, why bother when I can make a lot of money doing stuff like Take Two or Home Depot or something like that? Um, you know, one name I looked at recently, and I'll just throw this out to people, and I'm not involved. I didn't get involved but it's a jeweler called Signet Jeweler. Okay. And they basically own K Jewelers. Um, they own K Jewelers. They own uh, Zales and they own Jared. Um, and that's a tough one. You know, I would not necessarily recommend it to people. There are pros and cons there. They have huge market share. Before I looked at them, I didn't even know that Kay and Zales and Jared were all owned by the same person. And 50% of their business is bridal related. So you got kind of a core there. You know, like if you live in the New York area, you can go down to the Diamond District and buy your, your girlfriend's engagement ring. But, you know, in other parts of the country, you you know, you end up at Zales or Jared's or whatever. And so they've got huge market market share, uh, 50% is bridal. That's not recession resistant, but you know, people are still going to be getting engaged. It's not a discretionary purchase. Purely, you know, you can delay an engagement, but when you're ready to do it, you got the cash burning a hole in your pocket. If you get marriage, you need rings. Um, but the problem is they're in malls and mall traffic is declining. So some of that traffic is going to go to a mall anyway, because it's a destination, like they're going to go to the mall because they're looking, you know, they have to go get that wedding ring. Um, but, you know, Valentine's Day purchases and other things where I'm just wandering by and I see a nice watch. I don't know. So that's one that I looked at you know, kind of was, you know, six one way, half a dozen the other on it, didn't get involved, may get involved later, don't know. Um, but that's the kind of thing that you're dealing with now with some of these equities that are really beaten up. The business model is questionable, you know, because the fact that mall traffic is down and continue, I think it was down 4% last year and it's continuing to decline. It's not an easy thing to make a bet on. So, um, and, you know, that's what you get. So I'm not, I don't, the company doesn't have a lot of bonds and I'm not sure where the bonds are trading. I was looking at the equity, but, you know, people were recommending the equity last year in the thirties. I think at the end of the last year it was in the twenties. Now it's at six, you know, and again, I think a lot of that is people are concerned about the business model and then they're in malls, they have leases. So they do, they can, you know, all the stores are closed, the malls are closed. So they, do they continue to pay, make those lease payments? So I think they have- what do you think's gonna happen? What do you think's gonna knows happen when that business pops back again? I yeah. think the the bridal business will come back, but I guess what I'm saying with with this particular one, I don't know. And again, it's not because it's a pop back like I think 
Inc. And I keep referencing Starbucks. I can't think of anyone other, you know, off the top of my head other than Starbucks. But, you know, Square, I guess, is another one. But um, I think it's not a question of when they're going to pop back. I think it's a question of if they're going to pop back. And that's kind of what separates some of the equities that we have seen been beaten up just because the market is down and some of the equities that we have seen being beaten up because there's a problem with the business. And so I don't know. I can't. I couldn't recommend that stock to you because I just don't know. And it's not because, look, I think the bridal business comes back, but that's half the business. I'm just not sure the future of malls. And we've been talking about that for years now. You know, as more and more people shop online, what is the future of a mall? And so it, I'm hard pressed to say to somebody, go run out and buy that stock because there's something else going on other than just the recession. And so they've got to get through the recession. But like, you know, iHeartRadio, like Senveo, like, you know, newspapers, you know, it's not just the recession. It's something else is going on. And so I think that's what you have to be careful about with some of these companies that are really beaten up. And like I said, you know, it, it may make more sense to put money into something else that's, you know, that's down 30% than, you know, something that's down 50% or 70% because the fact that it's down 50 to 70% kind of lets you know there's something else going on here other than just COVID. Right, right. Very interesting. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else you do you want to talk about or bring up uh, before we wrap it up? No, I, you know, the only thing I would think is I, I you know, two things I wanted to mention, yeah, you know, please. we have some upcoming courses. Uh, one is for beginning investors. Um, and, you know, just how do you buy stocks in a bear market? I think you and I probably would agree. I still think the market, you know, uh, the bear market is in a great buying opportunity, particular for, particularly for millennials, because you can buy cheaper, you know, stocks that were much more expensive six months ago, you can buy them. And if you're a millennial, and you buy them, you know, over time. So your average cost is lower. You can hold on to them for five years. You're, you know, you're not looking to retire. You may not need the money for a while. So I think, you know, Warren Buffett has a quote that says, you know, every 10 years, the skies turn dark and the heavens rain down gold. And if that's the case, you should go out with a wash bucket, not with a teaspoon. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Look, everybody can't flip real estate. You know, everybody can't you know, doesn't want to do a side hustle, but pretty much anybody, especially with mobile trading apps, can buy stocks. And so uh, we have a course for novice investors that's going to launch next week. And then I'm also going to be doing one for more experienced investors, just because I think the traditional equity ratios like like, you know, uh, price to earnings and that kind of stuff may fly out the window soon just because, you know, I'm, I'm like talking to people who do what I do and they're like, okay, how do you value this stuff? If I'm already in Disney, I can say, okay, I'm going to buy more because I'm buying it at a discount to where I was buying it last year. But if I'm looking at something like, you know, Signet Jewelers for the first time, how do I value that? Because multiples are all over the place. I don't know what EBITDA is going to be this year. There's a lot more uncertainty there. And so there's some things that, you know, value investors, experienced value investors, you know, should be looking at like credit lines and upcoming maturities. And so we're going to delve into that a little bit. So if you're interested, go to millimoney.com and you can subscribe and we'll let you know when those courses are coming up. But I think, 
you know, despite my reticence to recommend, you know, any particular distressed bonds or to really come out, you know, for a distressed company like Signet Jewelers or anything like that, I think there it, it's a wonderful time to be to be an investor. I think you can create a lot of wealth for yourself. And, you know, I think you have to be wise about it. Do your homework on the balance sheet buy good companies, you know, with good balance sheets at good prices. Be prepared to buy and hold. But I think it's a wonderful time to be an investor and to create wealth for yourself. And what I will say, which you well know, and most of your listeners know, it's one of the few things you can put a couple of hundred dollars into and you know it's going to be worth more there's a really good chance it's going to be worth more in a couple of years than it is now. If I buy a new iPad, if I buy new shoes, they're going to be worthless in five years. But if I buy 500 of, you know, of, you know, I don't own Apple, but $500, you know, of Apple, it's going to probably be worth more in five years than it's worth now. And there's not a lot of things you can say that about other than stocks. So it's a great time to be an investor. Yeah. All right. Well, Shelly, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and stay safe. You too. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.